second chorus. Uh, please uh, join me in prayer as we take our needs and our cares to our God who listens to those. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we lift up the brokenness of this world to you this morning. We live in a world full of broken people, broken spirits, broken hearts, broken institutions, broken kingdoms, broken nations. We pray for those that are brokenhearted in this world. <clears throat> we know, Lord, that your glory is evidenced in all of your creation. <clears throat> we pray that you would reveal yourself to those who are lost, to those who are searching for something greater. We pray that you would bring a resurgence of your gospel all over the world. We pray that you would reveal to all of those who are lost a hope in a future that is everlasting, ever satisfying, and ever glorifying to you. We pray, Lord, that you would use us in this community get gateway to do whatever part we can in the sharing of this news to those who haven't heard it. We pray that you would prepare the hearts of those people to receive it with a glad heart. We pray, Lord, for the divisiveness of this world, especially in this country. Pray that your church, your people, would not play a role in that divisiveness, but instead show that we are united in your truth, the truth that matters. We pray that your truth would permeate through the hearts of all of your people and that, and that you would help them to put aside the worldly differences for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. 
All right, this morning we are concluding our uh, mini Christmas-themed series uh, with one last message. In this series, we've been reflecting on the hope that we have in the coming of Christ. We're looking at what Christ came into the world to do, and now we're also looking at forward to the return of Jesus again one day. Since this is our last message in the series, just a reminder that starting next week, uh, Pastor Chris is going to be starting a series in the book of Revelation. Uh, That will take us most of the year to complete. We're going to be doing some other uh, sermons within there, but but it's going to take us a good chunk of the year. Um, Interestingly enough, this passage is also in the book of Revelation this morning that I'll be preaching on. Uh, So since we're going to be doing a pretty thorough deep dive into Revelation in the coming months. I'm going to be a little bit more brief in my introduction to this passage and hopefully can still give you enough context that would be useful for you to understand the passage this morning. The book of Revelation is a, a final, is, is this con- final concluding book of the Bible, right? It's this great climactic ending to the most important story of the world. The book is written by John. Uh, there's some debate on whether or not this is the Apostle John or just another early Christian prophet named John. It's not really important for us to get into this morning. Just know that the book was written by someone named John. However, um, the, the book was written as an account of John's revelation or prophecy that was revealed to him by God. Now, John recounts these symbolic visions that he's seeing that reveal a heavenly perspective on the history of the world, especially in light of its final outcome. Now, unlike some conspiracy theorists might have you believe, uh, this book was not written as a secret code to decipher the exact time and date of Jesus' return, but instead it's a book that was written to bring hope and to challenge the church. It reveals that every human kingdom, every nation, will eventually become like Babylon, as described in this book, rebelling against God, and they must be resisted. And we have a hope in God's promise that Jesus will not let that evil go unchecked. He will one day return to this world, and he's going to destroy evil forever. And so leading up to our passage this morning, John, he depicts this return of Christ as king. As he defeats evil forever, he vindicates his followers and that brings us to our passage this morning where, we're gonna re- where I'm going to read from us in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, if you would like to open up your Bibles, uh, click, swipe, tap, do whatever you need to to get there. Um, I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 8 for us this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them, give from them the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. (laughs) We live in a world where everything new soon becomes old. New cars, they, they quickly get some scratches, dents, you know, their tires wear out, become bare. Eventually, it'll start to rust, break down. New clothes, sweaters, jeans, socks, they get worn out. Their colors fade. They get holes in them. They get stains. New food that you buy from the grocery store. If you don't eat it quick enough, it's going to go rotten or stale. Eventually, at a minimum, it's just not going to taste good. might make you sick, depending on how long you wait. You should probably just throw it out. New smartphones, they become quickly outdated. They slow down. You run out of memory. They become ineffective. need to be replaced. We clamor for new things. We have this desire for things to be new. We even buy insurance. We buy warranties to try to keep our things as new as possible or at least replace them with new things when they eventually break down and fail because they will fail. New things in this world always become old. We don't just do this with stuff either. We even desire newness in ourselves. This time of year is extremely popular for what? New Year's resolutions, right? I'm sure many of you came up with New Year's resolutions this year. Uh, It's a weekend, so a good number of you have probably already dropped the ball on your New Year's resolutions this year as well. Um, But every year it's popular to look at your life, look and decide what changes you want to make, and attempt to make those changes. New Year, new you. Maybe it's, you know, going on a diet, losing some weight, Working out, maybe it's learning a new skill, mastering karate, anyone, maybe. Uh, Taking up woodworking, maybe it's watching less TV, reading your Bible more, praying more consistently. Maybe it's finally conquering that sin that you've been struggling with. Whatever it is, it's common to look at your life, to look at your heart, desire something new, a different version of you, a better version of yourself. After a year goes by, even if we accomplished everything, everything we set out to do, what do we do again? We make more. We still look at ourselves and we know that there's still work to be done. There's still room to grow. There's still a better you there. So why do we desire such newness? Why are we so drawn to wanting things to be new? We're so drawn to newness or new things because we are so aware of brokenness. Brokenness in this world, where the things of this world fail, fall apart, let us down, are never satisfying. Brokenness in our lives and in our hearts, whether or not we are consciously or unconsciously aware of the brokenness in the world, 
it's no surprise to anybody when we at one time see something that's new become old. Things that we see as new that bring us hope, bring us excitement, eventually become old, stop becoming satisfying, let us down. Our own selves, no matter how much work we put into our lives, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, will never be perfect in this world. And we all know that from our own experiences. I'm not telling you anything new here. That's just living. That's what life is. And so naturally, we desire newness. We desire to replace the old with something better. We look for something or anything that will be better than what we know is just going to waste away. And if we're putting our hope into the things of this world, right, over and over again, if we're hoping for the things of this world, it becomes this vicious cycle of new things become old, they let us down, they fail, and they get replaced. And we do it over and over again. And eventually, if that's where our hope is, we're left pretty hopeless. We're left with the brokenness of this world, and there's just no hope in that. But for God's people, there's hope. That just makes this passage awesome. The book of Revelation, awesome. Uh, God promises that what we're used to, the brokenness of the world that we see, that we experience every day, he is going to make all things new. The central verse in this passage is verse 5. It says, And he who seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. After Jesus returned as king, after he defeated evil forever, God promises, he doesn't just promise, he declares that he's going to make all things new. God of the universe sitting on his throne after he makes this declaration, he, he reinforces it with saying that these words are trustworthy and true. You should write them down. And why does he do that? Because he wants you to believe them. He wants you right now, when you read this, when you see this, to believe and have your hope in the fact that God isn't going to leave the world in the brokenness that it's in. He will be making all things new. To have assurance that he will do that. All the brokenness, all the pain in this world, God will make that new. You can take that to the bank. God is the very definition of truth. And so we know that we can hold on to what he is saying and have hope. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Our hope rests on the reality of God making all things new. Our hope rests on the reality of making all things new. We have something very real to hope in. God isn't showing a, God is showing us this very real picture of what life for the Christian will be like. Some Christians might not put a lot of thought into eternity and what that's going to be like. They might just, you know, have some passing thoughts knowing, yeah, it'll probably be good. Um, don't need to fully understand it. But God, he gives this clear picture. He wants you to understand what it's going to be like, what the reality is what he promises that it will be like. God promises that the brokenness that we see, the brokenness that we experience will be gone. Instead, we can have a hope that he's going to restore, he's going to redeem, and he's going to make all things new. So we're going to unpack that this morning. There are three ways in which God is making all things new. First, there's going to be a, there's going to be a new creation. 
Two, there is God's people will be made new. And three, God will establish a new relationship with his people. New creation, God will make his people new. And then he will establish a new relationship with them. Let's dive into that first point. Verse one, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. For, sorry, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Before we talk about the new creation, let's talk about the, fir- the old one first. In the beginning, Genesis 1, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. He gave his creation light. He formed the sea, the mountains. Every inch of the earth was formed by his hand. He put fish in the sea. He put birds in the air. He put animals on the land. He created man. There was fruitfulness. There was harmony between animals, man, and God. There was no disease. There was no death. And when God looked over his creation, he saw that it was very good. Then we get to Genesis 3. We have the fall. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God and his instruction. They eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they're banished from the garden. They're banished from the very presence of God. And God's creation has ever since been suffering the consequences. Evil entered the world and it tainted it. Instead of harmony between man and God's creation, we have strife, we have futility. Man's needs are now only met by his own onerous hard labor. The ground became harder to work. For the things of this world, the scripture, they offer a pretty sobering assessment. It says, moth and rust destroy, thieves steal, everything is subject to decay. We are dust and return to dust. There is death. There's disease, there are famines, there are droughts, there are plagues. It's full of idols and treasures. There is creation that lures God's people away from the creator. The creation that was once looked upon by God and called good was now corrupted with evil. Romans 8 calls this out. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now creation, the world that you and I live in is groaning, groaning from being in this fallen state, groaning from being subjected to evil, to sin, to corruption. But John tells us in this passage, after Jesus's glorious return, that the first heavens, the first earth will pass away. What does that mean? Some of you might have an image of this in your head, what that might look like. You know, something like fireballs coming down from the earth, destroying it, blowing it up, throwing that earth away, and then a new earth is going to come down, be replaced, wiping the slate clean of the old earth and having the new one. But that's not what Revelation describes. Do you think God is going to concede the earth to his enemies? Seriously. Do you think that God would concede the earth. If you've been paying any attention to the God of this Bible, the real God of the Bible, you know that's not true. 
Do you think that God's just going to roll over and say, yeah, Satan, you know what? You take that one. You got me there. I'm going to start over. I'll make a new one. No. Like, what do you think the incarnation is? What do you think the resurrection is except for the reminder that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? God is going to reclaim it. He's not going to concede the earth to his enemies. It is his. And by inheritance, it's ours as well. He's not going to destroy his creation. He's going to reclaim it. He's going to redeem it of its brokenness. He's going to renew it to the glory that it deserves. From the moment that sin entered this world, God set into motion his plan for renewal. And in this passage, we're seeing the end game. The language of verse 1 supports this. Uh, the, the, new word, the word new here in Greek is kainos. Chris can tell me how wrong I pronounced that. The rest of you probably don't know. Uh, there, are, there are two words to describe new in the Bible, neo and kainos. Uh, neo describes something that's brand new, something that is neo and becomes old, can never become neo again. But kainos describes something that is qualitatively new or renewed. So when Paul describes the Christian in the New Testament as a new creation, he uses the same word. He uses kainos. Uh, he says the old's passed away and the new has come. And we know that, you know, when I became a Christian, I didn't just disintegrate and form a new me. No, that's not what happened. I was renewed. My creation was renewed um, by God. So what John is saying here is, is there's a change in ages, a change from the old creation to the new. What was the old fallen world will be reclaimed by its creator. It'll be redeemed of its brokenness and restored to its glory. God isn't making something new to replace the old and broken and outdated. God just doesn't throw stuff away that he created. God is redeeming, he's restoring, he's renewing what is preciously his. And so what's this creation, this new creation going to look like? Well, we're given some idea... in this part of Revelation. First, uh, we know that there will be no troubles like there were in the old earth. These former things like death, mourning, crying, and pain that were described in verse 4, all these universal realities of humanity after sin and death entered the the world in Genesis 3, those are no more. Which fulfills an Old Testament promises uh, from Isaiah 25.8. It says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Second, we know that there will be no more curses. If we flip to chapter 22 in Revelation, verse 3, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed. The curses that creation has experienced since the fall in Genesis 3, those are no more. All of that, all that came from those curses, no more. And they're not going to happen again. The creation will never again be subjected to those curses because God's creation has been restored. Third, we know that there's going to be no more threats. In verse 1, John highlights that the, the sea will be no more, which uh, might be confusing. Uh, unlike death, tears, curses that are passing away. The sea is, uh, is present in God's original good creation in Genesis 1. So what does that mean? So instead of, of the sea representing bodies of water 
here. The sea represents threats to God's people. Symbolic language. In the Bible, the sea is often used as a symbol of chaos and disorder. In the book of Revelation itself, uh, the sea is consistently linked with evil power and ungodliness. The devil temporarily exists exerts his great wrath on the earth and the sea, which together represent the first creation. The blasphemous beast arises from the sea and receives the dragon's power. The absence of the sea in this new creation signifies that that God will remove every threat to his redeemed people. There will be no more threats. There will be no more curses. There will be no more trouble Everything in this world that we're used to, all the brokenness, all the pain, all the troubles, all the institutions of this world that fail, all the parts that pull us away from God, those will be gone. Because God is making all things new. And in that we can have hope. We can put our hope in a very real creation. Our hope for eternity isn't sitting up on some clouds playing the harp. Um, Our hope is in a reclaimed, redeemed, renewed creation. One that has been prepared perfectly by God for his people. One that will perfectly glorify his majesty and be a real home for us one day. Which brings me to our second point. God will make his people new. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John sees this vision of a city, a New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. And what John sees is actually the personification of God's people, his church. The way that we know that is because of the second part of the verse. It was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What do we know is the bride of Christ? It's the church. It's God's people. Quick aside here, uh, because I don't want people to get confused and tripped up on this. People might get confused and say, okay, wait, God's people are coming down from heaven. I I thought to the earth, I thought when I go, when I die, I go up to heaven. Now you're saying we come down. Yes, uh, that is right. Uh, Before the return of Christ, God's people, his followers, they go up to heaven because the earth is not yet prepared for God's people. But now that the earth has been made new, heaven is coming down to earth. God's people are coming down to the new earth. And they are coming prepared. The key word here is prepared. God has prepared the bride, his people, by making them new. He does this in two ways, physically and spiritually. We'll take, let's take physically first. Now that I am uh, in my early 30s, I am uh, painfully aware of the limitations of the physical body. Uh, At this point, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say I'm outside of my athletic prime of my early 20s. Uh, If I just look at a snow shovel the wrong way, I think I throw my back out. Um, Our bodies just fail us. They don't just have limitations. They they break. They're susceptible to disease. Uh, they, They ultimately die there are some really, really terrible physical problems that people suffer in this world. Uh, Some people have missing limbs, paralysis. Some people are deaf or blind. There is brokenness in our bodies. Some of you, 
know this more than others, have experienced this more than others. I know some of you have probably thought that when God handed out the bodies, you probably drew the short straw. You got the raw end of the deal. Maybe you have some physical limitations. It's just not as easy for you to get around, especially anymore. Maybe there's a chemical imbalance in your brain. Maybe there's something wrong, some brokenness in your body that you feel but you can't explain and doctors have no idea what's going on. Our bodies fail. They will fail. They succumb to disease and they die. But let me tell you this. See, God has no intention of leaving any of his people in that condition. He will make our bodies new. Philippians 3, uh, 20 and 21 say, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. God's plan for his people is not to be disembodied spirits. So you might think that's easier, right? Like the body's the problem, it just keeps failing, just get rid of that, just be a spirit, no body. That's not God's plan. God's plan is for his people to have transformed, resurrected bodies, bodies that no longer experience death, bodies that no longer experience pain, bodies that are perfected by the imparted righteousness of Christ to be glorious like his. I, I don't even think we can truly imagine what that's actually going to feel like and be like until we experience it. You know, when your body isn't doing all that it can to just keep you alive, because that's what our bodies do, right? Like the parts of your bodies that are just fighting off diseases and, and keeping all your functions alive so you can live. Instead, our bodies are just meant for the sole purpose of glorifying God. That's, what, that's all the, their energy is spent for. But a new resurrected body is not the only way that God's people will be made new. God's people will be made new spiritually. What is the greatest frustration in a Christian's life? Sin. It's sin. It isn't sickness. It isn't your job. It isn't your lack of money. It isn't the fact that you don't have the nice, nice enough house. The greatest frustration in a Christian's life, at least the greatest frustration in this Christian's life, is sin. It's me. I am my biggest frustration. I want to be holy, and I fall short of being holy. I want to love, and I say hurtful things. Romans 7 describes this painful truth. It says, For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This war is the most frustrating thing about this age. At least it is for the children of God. In our hearts, there is this lingering pieces of brokenness and sin where we just feel stuck. Where we feel like we can't move, our progress is slow, we lose some ground, stop making progress. And maybe if you focus on that, it can be hopeless. 
Do you ever feel hopelessly trapped in sin? Where do you feel stuck? Maybe you long to be less fearful and more bold in your faith. More servant-hearted and less selfish. Less concerned with your own success and more joyful at the success of others. Maybe you want to worship, but you feel cold. You want to walk in peace, and yet you feel trapped by your anxious thoughts. You want to be pure in thought, and yet impurity bombards your mind. This war that rages in our hearts is frustrating, it's infuriating, it's consuming, and at times... At times, it can leave a Christian feeling hopeless if their eyes aren't set on eternity. But God doesn't want you to feel that way. Because there's hope. A promise that God is going to make you spiritually new as God has prepared his bride, his people are made new. And as we have been resurrected, all of those brokenness, the parts of us that pull ourselves away from God and his law and all the things that are good, the parts that are at war within us, those are removed and the very righteousness of God has been imparted on us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It won't be up to us on whether or not we can sin on the new earth. We can't let ourselves down. Because some of you might be thinking, okay, all well and good, but I'm still going to be the one up there, and I know me, I'll sin. We can't rebel against God. Because God has created in us a newness that will not be able to. A newness that is pure, a newness that is holy, a newness given to his people purely by his grace. Revelation assures us of this because there's no death. And since the wages of sin is death, there will be no sin. There are no curses. Since sin is a curse, we know that sin cannot exist in God's new creation. It's not because of us. It's not because one day we're going to be able to finally conquer sin on our own. No. It's because God's not going to leave you in that fight. He's going to rescue you. God will rescue your soul. He will deliver you from all that would pull you away from him. And when you maybe feel hopeless in this life, when it comes to this fight, when you know that that you need, you know what you need to be doing versus what you shouldn't be doing, and your mind knows that, but your heart just isn't there yet, in those moments, My advice to you is to wait on the Lord. As Isaiah writes, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Ask God to break your heart where it needs to be broken, to restore your joy and your salvation, and wait in him. Put your focus on, on him and eternity with him and the work that he will be doing and trust in his grace. Because one day this brokenness that you feel, it will be gone because God is going to make you new. Not because you're going to heal yourself, not because you'll be able to put the pieces together yourself, but because of God. All right, my last point. God, he's going to establish 
a new relationship with his people. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. When Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, they were cut off from the very presence of God. God used to walk amongst them, and now because of sin, that was no longer possible. It's true that God is with us now as Christians. His spirit dwells in us. Jesus promised that he would never leave us to the end of the age. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says, While we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Here we walk by faith and not by sight. There is a a deep, painful sense that we are away from the Lord. We don't see as we're one day going to see. Something greater is coming for all of us in terms of relationship with God. How many of you have cried out, to God and said, if I could just hear your voice, if you could just tell me, if I could just see you in your darkest times when you just say, God, if I could just see you and be in your presence. But as we look to this new reality that's promised in Revelation 21, this new creation where all the hardness and all this futility of the world's removed, our new resurrected bodies and hearts have the imparted righteousness in it, none of it None of it even comes close to the reality of God establishing a new relationship with his people. The the ever-increasing joy of this reality is the presence, the very presence of Jesus. It isn't that work just isn't going to be hard for you anymore. It isn't that you're going to not have a body anymore that's going to fail and get sick and die. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, And I saw that no temple in the city— for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no more temple. The temple was the dwelling place of God, but now the place of God is with his redeemed people. The relationship is what makes this beautiful. It isn't that earth will be more beautiful and glorious than ever before. It isn't because you can't die. Because I'd argue that if you can live forever and you can live on this new redeemed earth with no death or disease, but you couldn't experience this. If you couldn't experience being in the very presence of God of the universe, I don't think you'd even want to live forever because the things get old for you. But what won't get old is the infinite glory of God, his infinite majesty, his infinite grace, his infinite love for his people. We are going to experience the triune God like we have never been able to the degrees that our brains just can't fathom because of our own brokenness. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this part of the reality. In chapter 22, verse 4, John, he's talking about God's people, and he says that they will see his face. They will see God's face. Not even Moses was able to see God's face. Moses, he asked God to see his glory. God told him, nobody can see my face. He said, for for man shall not see me and live. And yet, here we'll be in the very presence of God and able to stand before him face to face. I've been a a Christian for about 12 years now. 
And in that time, I have rejoiced. I have wept. I have wrestled with him over things that I just didn't understand. I've argued with him. I have never been forsaken by him. I have been protected by him. I have been defended by him. He has rescued me. He has redeemed me. He has held me fast. In the darkest moments of my life, he was right there. I have prayed to him and it felt like it was hitting the ceiling. I have consistently fallen short of what he has had for me. I have disobeyed. I have rebelled. And I'm going to be standing in front of him, in his presence, face to face. And on that day, you and I will hear, well done. I don't know about you, I don't feel well done. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be in his presence, let alone be able to be face to face with him. I don't deserve to live in a world so beautifully magnifying his glory, but by his abundance of grace, he's established a new relationship with his people. We will be able to see him face to face. We will walk in his presence. And there is no condemnation for those of you in Christ Jesus. When we're standing before him, there's not going to be any heavy sighs, no eye rolls. There won't be any lectures of what you should have done. You won't need to rehash anything. He won't ask you those loaded questions that really cut deep, like, what were you thinking there? You sure you should have done that? No. You will see him face to face, and he will say, well done. By the grace of God, in every way that I know how, every single day of my life, I need to live for that moment. When we are frustrated with our brokenness, when we are fed up with the brokenness of this world, the things that fail, the things that let us down, we need to focus on that. I need my heart to be centered on that moment that I will be in the very presence of God standing before him face to face. This orients the Christian life. This is the hope that we can live for. This helps you understand Paul a little bit more when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? It doesn't matter if I'm suffering. It doesn't matter if there's pain. It doesn't matter if people are ridiculing me for my faith in God. It doesn't matter if I'm being persecuted because to live is Christ, but to die? But to die, that, you don't understand, that's gain. You understand Paul a little bit better when he says things like in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that's starting to make a little bit more sense in light of this. Right, Paul, that's what Paul sees. That is where, what we need to see, that is where our hope needs to be. So what does your hope look like? Are you hopeful? We should start there. 
Is your hope fixed on the reality of God's promise to make all things new? Is your hope for the brokenness of this, uh, uh, for the hope, sorry, is your hope for the brokenness of the world, the promise, the newness of God? Are, are you hopeful that God will one day redeem your own brokenness? Are you hopeful that this distance you feel from God will one day be eliminated? Are you actually living that hope today? 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. The hope inside of us should be evident. So evident that, that being a Christian should just look really weird to people that don't understand it. Right? So weird to people that look at the things of this world and try to get their hope in it, but it fails. Right? But Christians, they have this hope that, that will never fail. That's just weird. Right? Like, that should look weird to people. So is your hope in gathering money or gathering comforts or watching TV? Is your hope in one day that the brokenness of this world will just be enough for you? That, that maybe you can accumulate enough stuff that'll just dull you to the reality of your brokenness? Because people should, should be able to look at us and say, man, there's something different about them. There's something there. I can't explain it. There's a hope there that they live their life with, and that's just different. It, has anyone ac ever asked you, why, why can you be so hopeful in the midst of the brokenness of the world? Right, like, everything fails. Like, this country is crazy. The, this world is crazy. There's chaos. There's just everything. How, how can you live your life and actually be hopeful? Is your life evidence of the hope that's in you? Does, does your life show that and resemble that? Because if not, just take a look at where your heart is. Because we're so addicted to this world. That's just not going to satisfy and it's very broken. But the most free people in this world are the ones that they know their hope. They are secure in their future. It's not knowing what, what next year is going to be like, that you, know, you have enough financial security to make it through retirement. That's not your hope. But it's knowing what eternity is for you. Hope frees us up for a radically new lifestyle, a life that isn't built on gathering treasures on this earth, a life that is built and focused on the kingdom of God, a life hopeful for the newness that God and only God can provide. For those that are not believers in Jesus Christ, who hear this and don't know what that means, they have not put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, there's also a very real reality for them for eternity. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This eternity with God, the new creation, his new redeemed, reclaimed earth, God's new people, this new relationship with him, it will only be available to those who have put their faith in Christ. And those who haven't, 
they will be spending eternity separated from God, which is a punishment worse than everything else. But we have hope. Hope in a God who from the beginning of time has had a plan to redeem his creation, to take his people back, to reestablish what was lost. He has given us a promise, a certainty, that one day he will make all things new. He will rescue this world and his people from the brokenness that we experience every single day of our lives. That's all we've known. And one day we will live in a very real place where there's no pain, more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And most importantly, we will be living in the presence of God. So let's put our hope in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, glorious, wonderful Father, we thank you for the hope that we can have in our hearts. We thank you that you have given us a hope that will withstand the brokenness that we feel and we experience every day of our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would not allow us to be consumed of our own brokenness, that you would help us to not be fixated on the brokenness that we see in this world, but instead to set our eyes on you and eternity, Lord, to truly understand and live, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That we pray, God, that our lives would be marked by your hope, and that you would help us to cherish that, we would see that, we relish the moment that we're able to one day be in your presence and be there for all of eternity. It's in Christ's glorious name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we sing another song.